Brett, you and I have been talking about this probably since October. Yeah. And we were looking at what's happening in in, in Detroit mm. with Unleash the Gospel. So this movement, um, the diocese there is recognizing what the Holy Spirit is doing there. Um, their archbishop, spirit-filled man, mm. is calling for, in the midst of this crazy time in the church, for the church to go on the offensive mm-hmm. and unleash the gospel. And I think we started talking about that and you started saying to me, wow, I think something is happening here in Vancouver as well. Yeah. And um, James, you and I had also been kind of talking about that time. And um, then we started saying, yes, something is happening. What are the things that kind of surrounded that? And you, we also don't feel like that's, it's just now. Something has been building. Why yeah. don't you walk us through what's been happening? Well, and the way that I talk about it, where I'm most comfortable is to start with the church, because I think everything that happens locally has its power and fire when you know you're you know, in line with what the church is doing. So the fact that Pope Francis in 2017 called the church to observe an extraordinary month of mission two years later, in October of this year, 2019, I think is very important. And um, when when he called for that, when you actually look at the, the things that he wrote and the things that he said in announcing it, even his response to Cardinal Filoni, who's the prefect for the Congregation of Evangelization of Peoples, he communicated his heart for this. And this is where it's exciting, I think, for us and, and, and for us to really catch, because Pope Francis, when he when he sort of called for the church to observe an extraordinary month of mission, he wasn't just saying have an event. He wasn't just saying, you know, let's get together and, and celebrate something. He was prophetically saying, and my hope for this extraordinary month of mission is that it would lead to an impulse that transforms everything. That it would lead to community after community after community embracing the new evangelization, embracing a new way to do pastoral ministry, embracing the, the newness of the, the, the continual refiring of Pentecost. Um, and that's what is exciting. And a very high level is that the Holy Father is asking us to transform what we're doing. To, to no longer, it's no longer status quo, it's no longer business as usual. And so when you catch that fire and you start to look at the local scene and the local church, um, you can see pockets of individuals or communities and different groups that are already doing some of those things. And where the opportunity is here for us is let's not change any of that, but let's bring it all together under one banner, under one movement, if you will, and and do this together, continue to do amazing things together. One of the privileges that I have in working with Archbishop Michael is that I get to have some of those conversations that maybe we don't hear about. And so when we first started talking about how Vancouver was going to respond, uh, Archbishop Michael very quickly got onto the opportunity in front of us that the event that we have on October 26th is not a time to celebrate something uh, only. 
it's also a time to launch something. And one of the ways that he did this in, in communicating with the planning team that is organizing that particular event, he said very clearly that this is not to be a gathering event only, but it's to be a sending event. So from our shepherd, there's a, there's a prophetic word being spoken that he wants this at a local level to be the catalyst to more and more intentional disciples becoming missionary and to take very personally and seriously the call you know, to, to evangelize. And the, the beautiful thing about this is that Vancouver does have a long history of individuals and movements and pockets that have been heroic in how they've responded. Um, one of the stories that I love to share because it was so meaningful to me is um, when my wife and I moved to launch Catholic Christian Outreach, CCO here in Vancouver in 1998, uh, and CCO is one of those movements that has a long history now in Vancouver and right across Canada uh, that's, you know, doing amazing things. But after we'd been on campus for a while, you know, just trying to really launch a campus movement dedicated to evangelization and building into students and, and all of that. And these students, you know, they're 18, 19 years old. But I was at, my wife and I were at a um, charismatic conference in the fall and I happened to have a conversation with this individual, and the name now escapes me because I, I knew some of the people in Charismatic Renewal, but I didn't know this individual. But they shared with me that as soon as it was announced by the city or province or whatever that there was going to be a university up at Burnaby Mountain, um, that they uh, their prayer group began to go up on campus once a week and pray for spiritual renewal and revival and pray for the conversion of young people and pray that the proclamation of the gospel would happen. And they're sharing this story with me almost with a tear in their eyes saying, you are a response to what we were praying for. Now, in the moment, for about half a millisecond, you feel sort of privileged that, that you know, this person conferring, you're, you're an answer to our prayers kind of thing. But really what it did is it would put the proper context of, oh, so the Holy Spirit is doing something much bigger than we can see. He is writing on a canvas much bigger than we can see. Uh, and then you get the sense that you're caught up in something, not at your own doing, but you're a response. You're responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And I think Vancouver has a very long history. I mean, I think of individual people that have been heroically committed to ministry in the church and to the new evangelization for years and years. And I would want those people to know that what we think is going to be launched on October 26th, we are able to launch because we're standing on the shoulders of giants, that we are able to see more clearly because we are literally held up by those who have gone before us. And people like Lenny David come to mind. I mean, Lenny, many people in the church in Vancouver know Lenny, and she's been so actively uh, committed to the renewal and to the Life in the Spirit seminars and slugging away. And I'm sure there's times in many, many moments that she had where maybe she felt like quitting or she just wasn't seeing the fruit she would want to or maybe it wasn't seeming, seemingly embraced by all the right people or whatever the case may be. And all that she has done... Uh, is, is wonderful and of value, but
but it also sets up for something new, something beautiful, something that God is is unfolding in new ways. I think of Vern Robertson. I think of you know what he did with Catholic evangelization training ministries and how it was many years ago where Vernon was one of the, the leading voices in bringing Alpha to Vancouver for the first time. And we actually had Nikki Gummel come and he did this amazing conference and that spurred on a lot of people. But I think of others, I think of the communities like um, Couples for Christ or Emmanuel Community or CCO or NET or, you know, just all of those people who have really led the way and done so heroically and that that wit- their witness their ministry, their gift, their contribution cannot be underestimated at a time like this, mm-hmm. when something new of the Spirit is about to be birthed, um, because the Holy Spirit works linearly. Like he, he is a God of order, and He sees the bigger picture and how all these things, you know, are are fa- fitted and fashioned together. So, you know, it, it is a tremendous privilege to be in this, but we also have a, a real responsibility to carry on the incredible work that was done by so many people throughout the years. Mm-hmm. I also think to respond to that is yeah. like, what is this thing, you know? And we've talked a lot about, it's not something separate from mm-hmm. the work of those amazing people and movements and groups and, um, individuals, but this is really a, um, I think God has given you and like, uh, our bishop and um, a little bit of a vantage point. You know, mm. I think the Holy Spirit has has given this little spot and to say, look, there are laborers there and there and there, and they are doing great things. And um, when we got together at this point, and I think we'll talk about that in a second, we kind of said, wow, there are people in all corners. Mm-hmm. What if we were plowing the whole field at once together? Right. And so this is not something that we want to drop anyone out of the amazing work that they're doing in proclaiming Jesus in, in Vancouver. Yeah. But I think it's more about a, a naming it so that we can double down and support the people who are doing that and invite new people into it yeah. so that the work of the Spirit can be multiplied in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned plowing, so this is a good segue yeah. to this beautiful story. So there's a there's a video that was produced, and I saw it years ago, and it just I I still just remember like I saw it yesterday, kind of thing. It made that much of an impact. So the context of this story that is captured on video is that you've got a family. It's a farming family coming from Saskatchewan. That means something. So, but you've got this farming family, and the dad early on in the video is portrayed as just a salt of the earth kind of guy. He's just he's hardworking. You know, he leads his family in prayer before the meal. He's up early out in the fields. You know, just you get that sense of this is a real good man. And as the story goes on, unfortunately, he got sick and then ended up passing away. And it's, of course, very devastating to to his wife and to the children and all that. But on top of the difficulty of mourning the loss of your husband, your father, and such a very good man, the harvest is about to happen. And of course, dad did the harvest for years and now he's gone. So you see in this video, the sense of responsibility that the oldest son has, you see the mom trying to hide her grief and, and sorrow and, and, and sadness and, and overwhelmed uh, state from her children and all that. And um, it looks like it's going to be lost. And of course there's massive financial implications for the family and all that. And then the, the, the video shows the rising of the sun 
and then you hear the the motor of a combine and a tractor and then you hear another one and then you hear another one and then the the video pans out it's quite beautiful it pans out to a bunch of tractors coming from all different directions in this video converging on this one field of this family i'm actually getting emotional right <laughs> <laughs> he left this out um so you got all these tractors and combines converging on this one field and the wife sort of recognizes what's happening and what's happening is all the neighbors are coming to harvest the field and um when she sees what's beginning to happen and then the wives and the family start coming and they they prepare this amazing feast and basically in a day the harvest is brought in and uh it's you know overwhelmingly joyful and and all the rest of it but it it was such a powerful metaphor um for what this movement can be because in many ways this movement wants to give voice and strength and purpose to a bunch of disparate entities individuals movements communities all doing heroic things but let's bring them all together without diminishing any of their their impulse their direction but bring it all together under one movement that we get to celebrate the good of everything that's happening and maybe by working together make an even greater impact and do something so amazing like this this community of farmers did so um yeah there it, it, it's called the harvest video and it's just a very compelling kind of metaphor for what the church can be mm. yeah when i think of voices coming together for the proclamation of the gospel and to do so on you know in the power of the holy spirit so efficaciously it's just so inviting to other people to be caught up in this mm mm-hmm. And you see that in the pockets. You see that in the many of the movements that we've mentioned, whether it's CCO or NET or the Neocatechumenal Way or Communion Liberation or whatever movement it is, Couples for Christ. Um, that's what's happening. They see something that's bigger than themselves and they get excited about it. Well, we want to see that on an even bigger scale for the sake of the gospel. James, what's resonating with you in all this? Uh, partly that I think I represent one of the big challenges of the church. So I'm a lifelong Catholic, first-time disciple. <laughs> um, so I'm honored to be here, but I think about being late to the party mm-hmm. and the, the opportunity ahead of a lot of us as Catholics. I feel like we've been a bit of a sleeping giant in Vancouver, and my evangelization was pretty late in life. So for many years, I could defend the church, never miss Mass, but it was driven by a deep sense of obligation. Mm. And then as I started to have children and grew this desire to share my faith, I started to meet people like Brett and Jason and Jake and Heather and the McKinnon family and many others. And I started to see this commonality that those passing their faith onto their children had this deep love of Jesus and an actual relationship with him. Mm. So I did everything I could to pass on my faith without that because that seemed too big a gap for me to jump. Mm. And I think we're in a church full of people who love the church and who love the community and love the sacraments, but who don't quite know how to develop that relationship. And so as I I got to see it in action, it became more and more of a draw. Mm. And seeing that Jesus has transformed lives of people that I knew before has been life-changing. So I, I feel now just in the last few years, 
understanding this a little bit, the idea of having disciples brought together for the first time in my lifetime into one room to hear what God has to say mm. is very exciting. There was this event, um, this is still when I was a missionary with CCO, and we had this event, and it was an adoration event, but people were encouraged to bring their friends just to come and you know experience it. And so uh, this one student had befriended this other girl in their class and was just really loving her, just spending time, taking her for coffee, just building relationship, really going belong first. It was, it was beautiful. It was quite neat. So this friend that she had been trying to build relationship and a friendship with uh, came to the adoration event. But she showed up in uh, what some, I'm sure, would consider uh, a pretty short skirt. And I had somebody come up to me and basically say, did you see what that girl was wearing? Somebody needs to go to her and tell her this is not appropriate. This is not how we behave in the church. And I'll never forget this because there is this, I think, maybe I'm too sinful for this, but this righteous sense of anger. Because I knew this girl's story. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was the first time she had come back to a church in probably 15 years. And she's only, whatever, 22 years old. And I'm like, that is the last thing I'm going to say to this girl. And uh, she just needs to know she's, she's, she's welcome, just as you are. And, and why is she welcome just as you are? Because that's how Jesus welcomes us. And you mentioned Zacchaeus' story. Beautiful stories in the gospel that really communicate the heart of Jesus as a Savior. You know, another one is, is his time with the Samaritan woman. And, you know, we know that he, he had a choice. He could have went, he could have passed over Samaria, which most Jewish, Jewish uh, pe people did. But he decided to go through Samaria, and not only go through Samaria, but to go to a place of the well at high noon, knowing that nobody would be there except the person in that community that felt the most shame and did not want to be with people. So if you know you don't want to be with people, go to the well at noon because nobody's going to be there. Because they go before the sun rises or after exactly. the sun rises. Cause Cause it's too hot, right? Yeah. It's very pragmatic. And we know this story and it's been preached many times, but it's just such a fitting illustration because that's exactly where our seeking Savior went. And even just the way he handled that conversation, you know, he felt... He didn't back away from any of the difficult things to say or whatever, but he really just communicated to her that you're, you're welcome. Like he didn't make proper belief and all that a requisite for friendship with him. And I think this really, I mean, it kind of speaks to what Pope Francis has been saying ever since his pontificate began, which is that the work of evangelization is going to be messy. Like, and that's the messy places. It's being in relationship with others who are not behaving and believing the way that we quote unquote should believe or behave in the church, but that's what is required. That's what, that's what evangelization is all about. So, and I think there's hope in that too, because it is the, it is such a powerful way of witnessing. And so when James talks about how, you know, he's late to the game and, and he doesn't feel like he's an evangelist and James speaking on behalf of many others, but I also know James and I have seen him in how he interacts with people that are not practicing their faith and how he is creating a sense of belonging for them with somebody who is not only in the church, but works you know, for the church right beside the archbishop, but he creates this environment. And in that, an incredible evangelist. And I think many people 
you know, particular again, this is the opportunity in the home. Can you love people? Mm-hmm. Can you listen to them while they speak? Uh, can you not judge them? Just hold off any judgment and just allow them to feel comfortable in your presence. Well, then you got the heart of a missionary. You get the heart of an apostle who will build trust, create a safe environment for others to come into their life in the hopes that they will eventually encounter Jesus Christ himself. So, you know, this movement really is asking a lot of people, but it's not hard. It's doing something that really should be natural, which is just, you know, building friendships with people that aren't currently practicing their faith or living the faith or in the church. And all of us can do that. We can all do that. Yeah, I think the for most of the church, the 95% that Sherry Waddell talks about, the move from potential disciple to disciple is almost always through an encounter. Mm. And in my case, and a lot of other cases, it's encountering Jesus directly. And then it's encountering him through the people that you've grown to love and trust. And the fact that those people that are already missionary disciples or intentional disciples are the least judgmental, the most caring, the most giving people I've encountered in my life Mm. is part of the draw. And so for my daughter and I, who had a medical and spiritual miracle at the same moment in the same hospital, four floors apart, that was like a, a wake up that, holy cow, this is real. Yeah. And now what do I do? And then that was sort of the threshold from potential to intentional disciple. The tricky part is then from intentional to missionary, Mm. it's how do I grow in this new relationship with God? And then how do I learn how to share it? And that's where this gathering is very exciting because I have found there are thousands of ways through each of our personalities that God created that he is going to tell us how to share him, that it's not nearly as formulaic as I had thought. So I had actually studied years of apologetics before I encountered Jesus. That's really backwards. (laughs) And I think a lot of the church might be sort of stuck in that. I know what I'm supposed to say when someone brings up abortion or when someone brings up contraception, but to do it outside of a relationship with Jesus is a huge burden. Mm. And I had a bit of a breakthrough. A lot of my breakthroughs come in Las Vegas. We've talked. (laughs) (laughs) And I was with a friend who's, who's not in the, not practicing his faith right now. And I keep thinking, as you've alluded to, Brett, I don't know if it's a lack of a sense of unworthiness or being poorly equipped, Mm. but I'm trying to open up, say, God, share through me, through who you made me. And this friend and I were walking down the main strip in Las Vegas, and a a prostitute apparently found me very attractive because she approached me. Mm. And she offered services, and I, you know, my best Canadian Christian side, I kind of politely said, no, thank you. Like, thank you. <laughs> Manners are very important at this point. And the, the friend, you could tell, he, he was getting a kick out of this uncomfortable moment for me. And he said, what would Jesus do? And in that moment, mm. God shared with me to share with him, Jesus would have asked her to dinner. And he immediately said, that's the Jesus I want to know more about. And it was a sincere cry on his part to say, please tell me Jesus does not have a lamb around his neck mm. and that he is blushing at the first hint of beauty. Yeah. Like, please tell me that he's real and authentic and actually wants to be in a relationship, yeah. that he built tables, that he carried heavy things, that he had good friends, that he drank, that he went to weddings. Yeah. A lot of the things that this friend is very good at, 
Jesus is ready to be for him and with him. So he then quickly pivoted and said, well, are we going to ask her for dinner? And I had to immediately say, I'm not nearly holy enough to do that. <laughs> I find her strangely attractive and we're, we yeah. can't, but let's talk more about this. And we ended up having the best faith talks of my relationship with him. Mm. And God didn't call me, as you said, to be a theologian in that moment no. or to quote saints or to write a sonnet. He yeah. just said, go have a margarita with that friend and just share your journey. And that, I think, is very freeing for a lot of people that are either potential disciples but practicing their faith and carrying that burden, or even brand new intentional disciples. Mm. It's that desire to learn more from people who've been doing this for years. How do I share? Yeah. And mm. finding our own kind of pace and style that the Holy Spirit is breathing. Yeah. It reminds me of a, what you were saying, Brett, and what you've just shared, James. I, there was a time in my life where I had like almost wanted to go through evangelization like like marks you know like like a kill count <laughs> and i think yeah, yeah. that it was just so fruitless you know and i i hear your heart and i hear i hear both of your hearts and the last thing that we've ever um we haven't talked about this but mm. there's no agenda here except for being jesus so that other people can encounter him and we'll leave the converting up to the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. I just think that's, I mean, as we sit here, I feel that's important to share with people is that sometimes this can sound like a guilt trip. And I know that yeah. you, I've heard you say countless times, this is not about guilting people. This is about inviting people into something that they already want to be a part of. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. You just speak to that for a second. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the the movement that we're talking about, one of the one of the things that I would say is that this movement will give legs to people's hearts. You know, it will come alongside people who have a natural desire to share their faith and to see others come to faith. Um, you know, whether it's providing some training in in evangelization or a community or some digital resources, whatever the case may be, to build their sense of confidence and their sense of um you know, uh, ability or, you know, whatever. But yeah, I mean, this is, it is an incredible privilege to be able to share our faith with others. And that's really what it is. It's, it's, yes, we all have the responsibility to by virtue of our baptism, but deeper than that, it is an incredible joy. It is an incredible privilege. I mean, we're on the heels now of celebrating the great feast of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, and the birthday of the church. And this movement of the new evangelization has to be predicated on a new Pentecost coming. And when the Holy Spirit comes and fills us with joy and zeal and love, we are naturally compelled out of that place into the world to share the gospel. We've talked about this not being... This is not a top-down thing, mm -hmm. but we also know that our archbishop is 100% behind this, and you guys get to talk to him all the time. Can you share a little bit about his heart for what's going on um, now as well? I can tell you he's, I mean, here's a, a man who is as academically advanced as anyone I've ever met, anyone I've ever worked with. Yeah, I, I love to share that people are shocked to find out how smart people in the church are that between the bishop and I, we have seven doctorate degrees. <laughs> He's got seven. <laughs> um, 
so despite that, because it would be easy for him to default to the intellectual, mm-hmm. and he speaks how many languages, but he has this deeply paternal sense of drawing people to the church. He's mm-hmm. got a very kind side that I had never seen until I got to work with him more. Yeah. Uh, but he is so excited about this movement. I remember stumbling through some of this when I first started in the church, and I would say things like, well, is it okay if this is lay-led? And he said boldly, if it isn't lay-led, it's not going to happen. Right. Other times where I've said, how do we balance diocesan needs with parish needs? And he said, there's no such thing as a diocesan need. It's all not only parish, it's family need, it's individual need. So he's he has a real heart for this movement. And as mm-hmm. Brett's been presenting it and summarizing it for him, I sense this excitement growing in him that he knows one of the challenges is we sacramentalize without evangelizing. Yeah. And when I go in thinking I'm insightful and say, I just found out that to enter our CIA, we're supposed to already be evangelized. We're supposed to love Jesus before we explore how to enter his church. Uh, He's fascinated that some of this isn't widely known, and Mm -hmm. he's excited about the idea that if he can help inspire and send forth disciples in Vancouver, that that's that's where his heart is. He wants to fan the flame however he can. Yeah. I saw that lived out very concretely in because um, I work closely with the team that's planning the October 26th as an event, like specifically. So it was a team of people, and he wrote a letter to them and kind of gave him a bit of a mandate, you know. And there was five things that he talked about, which I want to just read because I think it does communicate his heart. So the first thing, he, you know, he, he basically said, you know, this this event has to be all that, you know, events should be and all that kind of thing, but particularly let us emphasize these five things. And the first thing that he wanted to emphasize is the universal call to holiness and mission and to promote kind of on the heels of that, the missionary dimension of the home. And I think he is, does get really excited about that because there is, there's already a, a language of that in the church. We call the home the domestic church, you know, but that has to be layered and contextualized in current reality of what today is. And, you know, a, there's a lot of wounds in the world. There's a lot of people that you lock eyes with every single day that are carrying very profound, deep wounds and hurt. And for so many of them, those wounds were inflicted in the context of their home. And so when we say the missionary dimension of the home, it's never been more important than it is today. It's never been more important that Christian homes would be places of refuge for souls, that they would enter into a Christian home and on their couch or at their dinner table or standing at the island in the kitchen, that they would just be, that these experiences would be like a salve for their soul. And so then this is what the domestic church could be and should be and must be. And, and Archbishop Michael obviously understands that and really wants this, this event to be an impulse to really make our, our Catholic homes, our Christian homes as missionary outposts. The other thing that he said is he wants this event to be more of a sending event than a gathering event. I mean, it's important that we gather and all that, but people have to walk away from this conference with a very profound sense that they're on a journey that they've been commissioned and mandated to go do something maybe they've never done, be something they've never done, say something they've never done. Like we have to have that sense of, um, the Archbishop wants us to have that sense of the unknown. Like we're going into places that perhaps we haven't been before and that's okay. And we're doing it together and together we can do 
you know, great things. The Archbishop also, in his letter to the people that are planning it, he, he wanted us to understand that this conference, you know, primarily but not exclusively, is for what um, Sherry Waddell, again, forming intentional disciples, calls the 5%. And this is important language. We can just briefly understand this. So Sherry Waddell, who's done, you know, so much with the Catherine Ossiena Institute and in her academic career in, in different places, but one of the things that she talks about is how in her travels and in her own sort of study and surveys that the number of people who are actually practicing their faith regularly um, that have become intentional disciples, it's only about 5%. Hmm. So 5% of the people that are going to mass regularly are actually intentional disciples. So if we've got, you know, 81,000 or whatever Catholics that are going to mass on a Sunday in Vancouver, about 4,300 are intentional disciples. And so let's gather a, a group of these intentional disciples and encourage them to be missionary disciples. So the Archbishop really was focusing on that. The other thing that he really wanted to see, and this goes to the, the piece about sort of the history and standing on the shoulders of giants, that the Archbishop wants this conference and wants this movement to be an opportunity for profound collaboration with strategic partners. So again, this is not a top-down thing, although the Archbishop is strongly endorsing and inviting everybody and will be mandating, but ultimately it's recognizing the power of relationship and it's recognizing that there are movements and communities and individuals who are further along in their understanding, further along in their journey of evangelizing, and we need to partner together to do something you know, even, even more profound and make more of an impact. Uh, Mother Teresa was fond on saying, you can do what I cannot do, I can do what you cannot do, but together we can do beautiful things for God. And so Archbishop Michael really wants this to be a profound experience of collaboration for the sake of the gospel. And then the last thing that he said to the planning team is be bold and hopeful, like be bold and hopeful. And this is an important directive from a shepherd who has his thumb, obviously on the pulse of Vancouver, but also understands the state of the church right now. This is, and many people would say, now is not the time to be bold and hopeful. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, the clergy abuse scandal that is still being unpacked. Um, somebody spoke prophetically weeks ago that um, on the heels of the clergy abuse scandal, you're going to start to see financial scandals come up. And now we're starting to see pockets of financial scandals that are being brought into the light. We live in a world that is known as the information age, and yet people have never been so confused on things that matter most. That's what makes it more ironic or, or more tragic than ironic is that we're really confused about things that really matter dignity of the human person, our gender, uh, the sanctity of marriage, the primacy of marriage, all those things. So, um, and Archbishop Michael is saying, yeah, we don't have our head buried in the sand. We recognize all that, but we still must be bold and hopeful. We cannot, through timidity, keep the faith to ourselves. Now is the time. We're actually probably more pl better placed now to launch something like this than ever in the past because to launch something like this well, you have to be in a disposition of humility. You have to recognize that unless God be in this, it's bound to fail. Mm -hmm. But somebody else once said, plan something so audacious that unless God be in it, it's bound to fail too. So that's, I mean, we are in a perpetual state of, of, of Pentecost. We are constantly being 
invited by the Holy Spirit to go out and to proclaim the gospel. It is not a convenient time to do that right now. It can be embarrassing to even say that you're Catholic given the state of the church, but it's not about the church being perfect. It's about the perpetual need that we have for Jesus Christ as Savior in our lives. Mm. That's really what the essence is. And maybe in God's wonderful plan and design, um, for such a time as this, this movement is being birthed to confront in all humility um, the state of the church as it is, but to go forth anyways. Hmm. I heard somebody say recently that door-to-door vacuum salesmen are looking at the church thinking that we have a harder job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think the truth of it is what we've been talking about is this is not an intellectual idea about, oh, let me show you like the dynamics of the gospel. But when somebody like Jesus is the, the person, when, when we get to be Jesus for other people and, you know, as the Holy Spirit works through us and, uh, it doesn't matter. Mm. The church has faced super tough times in the past too. Yeah. So I think we just get to, again, stand on the shoulders of giants Mm -hmm. and, They figured it out in their time and we get to figure it out in ours. Yeah. And as broken as the church can feel at times, if you look at the world, even look at the data, like young people are reporting the lowest happiness levels in history. Hmm. So if the world had it figured out and the church was messed up, we would see very happy young people thriving. And instead we see people struggling with anxiety, depression, loneliness, overall unhappiness more than ever. And we have the cure. And I think the idea of having people who know the cure come together at one event and to see what God is calling us forth to do, again, has so much potential. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think about it just on a personal level, if I can get personal for a second. Hmm. You know, when when I look at the state of the church and some of the things that have come out recently, and not just the, the things that have come out in terms of the abuse that's happened, for me, what really shakes me to the core is the lack of leadership and governance of people who are in authority and abdicating their responsibility. Um, that's what really affects me deeply. And yeah, like I think I, and many others, perhaps you guys, like I'm grieving. Like I am so sad at some of the things that I hear on so many levels. But having a perfect church or a well-governed church or whatever, that's not what brings me joy. What brings me joy in the midst of all this is knowing that Jesus still rose from the dead, that he is sitting sovereignly in heaven, and that he wants this to happen because he, he always wants this to happen. He always wants people to come to faith and to experience his presence and power in their life. So, you know, and I think that's what's got to animate all of our hearts. You know, we can't turn a blind eye or, or not recognize that. No, I'm I'm upset as, as much as anybody. But that doesn't say that we don't do this. Because the reality is all that this, you know, the, the shambles and, and the things that we see, it just confirms our desperate need for a Savior. So in that way, we're perhaps more position now than we ever have been to try and reach out to the world. Mm. Yeah. Last thoughts. I feel like that might be a good closer, but any other thing you feel missing? 
Well, the one thing I would want to say, you know, we've talked a lot about how this movement is really, it's relational focused. It's the power of the simple message of the gospel and all those things. And that's not to take away from all the, the century old tradition of catechesis and theological formation and all those things. Those things are beautiful and you know, they're, they're another expression of goodness, truth and beauty and, and all that moves our soul. But we have to recognize that it's um, what people need from modern witnesses is their testimony. It's their encounter with Jesus and what he's done in their life communicated to them first through their own lived witness and their relationship and next through very simple truths being communicated, the gospel message being communicated. So this is not to say that those things aren't valuable or they're not a treasure of the church because we have a 2000 year old tradition. We've got incredible intellectual academic formation, but evangelization cannot answer questions to people that they're not asking. That's fundamental. So not to diminish any of that, but to recognize that uh, this movement is really deeply rooted in relational trust and in clear and simple proclamation of the gospel. Mm-hmm.